The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Women are told many things about pregnancy. For instance, that it'll be much harder to get pregnant in one's late 30s than in one's late 20s, that one shouldn't drink alcohol when pregnant or eat sushi or soft cheeses, and that pregnant women shouldn't get anywhere near the litter box. When Harvard-trained economist Emily Oster got pregnant, she decided to use her training to investigate the the data behind this advice. What she discovered may surprise you. Emily Oster is a professor of economics at the University of Chicago. She has written about AIDS prevalence in Africa, gender inequality in India, and is here today on Health Watch to talk about her new book, Expecting Better, Why the Conventional Pregnancy Wisdom is Wrong and What You Really Need to Know. Welcome to Health Watch, Emily Oster. Thanks so much for having me. So why don't we start out with what you think makes a book written about pregnancy by an economist different than a book written by a doctor? So I am not a doctor, as you say, and so my approach to this was was to really go to the data first. Um, I think as an economist, that's what my training is in, is in looking at studies and trying to evaluate what's a good study, what's not such a good study, and so I really, I kind of took that as my starting point, um, and I think that 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 led me sometimes, although not always, in, um, in a different direction. So I think that's, that's really the big distinguishing feature is kind of starting at the data rather than starting at the human body is almost how I put it. So let's start with fertility. I, thought, I found that really interesting, not only because a lot of patients have this, this idea that in your 30s you're going to start seeing a, a real plummeting in the odds of being able to get pregnant, particularly in your, your latter 30s, but I would say even physicians, a lot of physicians hold this view. So tell us a little bit about the data and what you discovered about uh, the odds of getting pregnant in your, in your 30s versus your 20s. Yeah, so it's certainly the case that your fertility declines over time. It's unfortunate for all of us that, like, 16 was the optimal time to get pregnant from our body's standpoint. Um, But when I looked at the data, this idea that somehow everything falls off a cliff at 35 was just just not the case. So, in fact, the probabilities of getting pregnant in your late 30s are actually quite similar to to in your late 20s. Um, And, you know, even... In some of these very old data, which are you know far, far before any kind of IVF or anything like that, you know some women in their late 40s, not a lot, but some you know did get pregnant naturally, and actually a reasonable share between 40 and 45 got pregnant. So, uh, so you know it's, it is, there's kind of some truth to this, like in many of these things that, that it is true that it's easier to get pregnant when you're 23 than it is when you're 39, uh, but it's it's not impossible, and it's not the changes are probably not as large as people might expect. So if the change is small, say, between 28 and 38, why do we have this idea? Is it based on bad studies, or is it just based on unreflective passing down of, of information from generation to generation? Yeah, I think it's hard to say. I think there's, there's some combination um, of each of those things. I mean, why you would put the cutoff at 35 as opposed to having a sort of more nuanced general view of, like, it's going down over time, it starts going down more quickly as you get to be, you know, 40 – I think this may just be that when we do studies, we have five-year age groups, and so you kind of have to draw the line at five years. So Um, so certainly, you know, one of the things that is particularly odd about this, I think when you think about how the data must be, it can't really be that there's something different between 
30, you know, on your 35th birthday, something happens. I mean, that's obviously not the way biological processes work. I'm not quite sure why it got so ingrained in people's ideas. So I don't know if you have the statistics in front of you, but if you if you do, what what are the odds of getting pregnant when you're 38 on average versus 30 or 28? So um, so there's some like recent, relatively recent data from France, which is sort of well controlled because they're using artificial insemination with donor sperm. So uh, so in that data, uh, it's about 75 to so 62. 75% of women under 30 were pregnant after a year, 62% 30 to 35, 54% for women over 35, although that last number was very similar for women 36 to 40 and women like 40 to 45. So, you know, it, it's going down over time. It's, you know, as you age, it's not, but it's not accelerating, and it's still like, a, like quite a large a majority of women in this sample over 35 were pregnant within a year. So, so some of the really interesting sections of expecting better, are you looking at the data around what women can and can't do during pregnancy if they want to optimize the health of the developing fetus? And, and one of the areas in America where it seems like really the medical advice is the less alcohol, the better, hasn't really borne itself out in the research that you looked into. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, so I think one thing to emphasize is, you know, it, it's definitely the case that binge drinking or heavy drinking during pregnancy is a mistake. And I think that's, you know, that's something that's dangerous, and I think we all kind of un- understand that. Um, when I went in to, to look at the data, though, I sort of quickly realized that we really do need to distinguish between kind of having six drinks at one time versus you know, having an occasional glass of wine at the end of the day. And, in fact, when you look at studies which focus on women who drink at that level, say, you know, a couple drinks a week in the first trimester or up to a drink a day in later trimesters, you just don't see any evidence that their children do worse on many dimensions that are measured than children of mothers who abstain. In fact, in a lot of these studies, they actually do a bit do a bit better on things like IQ or behavior problems. So it just did not seem to be the case that, uh, that occasional drinking causes problems in the data. And I think that's reflected in some sense in other in some of these recommendations being a bit more lax outside of, of the U.S. So in, in the U.K., for example, although the recommendation says, you know, abstaining is fine, they also say, you know, we don't have any evidence of, of problems for, you know, low levels of drinking. And so what would be considered a, a good low level of safe drinking in pregnancy? So I would say cert- what I came away from the data was thinking certainly no more than a couple drinks a week in the first trimester and no more than a drink a day in the later trimesters. So let me ask you a question, Emily. Does this data show that there's no established risk, or does it show also that, I mean, is there enough data to tell us that there's no risk or that there's only no proof of a risk at this point? Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the second thing for sure. So I think, you know, what we don't have in the alcohol case is a large-scale randomized controlled trial of drinking. We're never going to have that. In fact, we don't have that to prove that drinking is bad either. So this is not uh, – but, you know, I, and I think there are some women who are going to look at this and say, look, that's the only thing that would, you know, make me feel okay about this. Is, and then I think they should choose not to drink, and I think that's, that's obviously, you know, that's a great choice. Uh, what we have are – large studies which are well run, you know, well designed, they collect data on drinking while women are pregnant, they measure their kids, they follow them for a long period of time. Many of the best studies of this are run in European countries or in Australia where the attitudes towards drinking are a bit 
more lax, and so it's more common for women to drink occasionally. So the kind of women in that group tend to be pretty similar to the women who, who abstain. So in some sense, I, th- I think a lot of what the book is about is not saying, you know, great, everyone should be drinking because it's good for you, but rather saying, look, you know, here's what the data says on this, and we should, women should be thinking about making their own choices based on that data. And for some women, the choice they're going to make is, I don't want to have a glass of wine, and some women are going to say, you know, I find this evidence pretty compelling. I'm, you know, I'd like to have a half a glass of wine a couple times a week, um, and I think that this, this data suggests that that's, that's safe. Well, it's interesting, which isn't just common to pregnancy, but it's often we we see research which isn't very good being used to determine um, or being reported in the media as something that to determine uh, behavior. And for instance, some of the research that suggests no alcohol, you point out, has a lot of confounding variables like uh, mothers who are doing cocaine at the same time that isn't being controlled for in the study research. Yeah, no, I mean, I was sort of like, it's actually quite hard to find studies which show impacts, negative impacts of, of low levels of drinking. And the one that I, I talk about in the book, which is actually one of the few studies that shows this, yes, there are enormous differences between groups in the share of women who use cocaine and the share of women who, uh, who are not living with the father of the child, which is something we know to be a, a risk for behavior problems. So there it's kind of very hard to, to learn anything from that. But again, I, I sort of share your view that we see those things reported in the media and it's hard to parse out in a, you know, in a short article, uh, exactly kind of what are the flaws in the study and why is one study good and one study is not so good. So I, I sort of try to go through that a bit more in the book, sort of just like how would you even start thinking about what's a good study, what's not a good study. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Health Watch, and we're talking today to economist Emily Oster about her new book, Expecting Better, why the conventional pregnancy wisdom is wrong, and what you really need to know. So so what about a lot of the advice around food? We hear not to eat deli meats, not to eat soft cheeses. How, what did you discover when you started looking into a lot of these prohibitions around eating? So when I started thinking about food, the thing that I personally found overwhelming was that there was this incredibly long list, and there was no discussion of like why different things were were restricted and, and th- therefore how I should think about some new thing, which wasn't on the list, but seemed kind of like something on the list. So, um, so in the end, what I came away thinking is there are some things which are restricted for good reason. So the biggest risk in pregnancy with foodborne illness is listeria, which is something that can be carried in soft cheeses if they are unpasteurized. That's actually, in the U.S., actually quite hard to get unpasteurized cheese, maybe not as hard in Portland as where I live in Chicago, but, uh, but so if you're if you're having a lot of unpasteurized soft cheese, that's something to avoid. Those do have high risks of listeria, as do um, some kinds of deli meats like turkey, although not other kinds of deli meats. Um, so in the end, I came away thinking like those those are things that you should avoid. But actually, sushi, um, you know, uh, sushi in particular is something that I don't think that I don't think women should consider off limits if they are eating it normally and they're getting it from a reputable source and and so on. And then speaking of sushi, are there, are there particular foods? I know there's research on good fats, on DHA and EPA and, and IQ. Uh, what, are, what are some of the good fats that people should be getting in their diet? Yeah, so people should be getting omega-3s, and, which is a, a sort of what is in your DHA prenatal vitamins. And this is something that was, was very interesting to me. So when I started thinking about, about fish, in particular like big fish, because I was totally obsessed with having tuna when I was pregnant and I – just like couldn't get enough tuna. The idea of a tuna sandwich is like amazing. 
Uh, and so the reason you're not supposed to have that is because of high mercury. When I started looking into it, actually a lot of the fish that have a lot of mercury also have very high rates of omega-3s. And so in some sense, mercury is not good for your kid's IQ, but omega-3s are good for your kid's IQ. So I, I came down to trying to think about, like, which are the fish which have a lot of omega-3s and not a lot of mercury, which turns out to be salmon and also sardines and herring. So if you enjoy small, oily fish, this is excellent news for you. And you get a lot of omega-3s and a little bit of fish when you do the sardines. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> So, so one of the areas uh, that has a lot of uh, bad science, or at least science with confounding variables, is is the research on coffee. And I, I found that really interesting, since there was the the issue of morning sickness and nausea that sort of messed up the research around uh, whether coffee is safe or not during pregnancy. Yeah. So the big concern with caffeine consumption during pregnancy is miscarriage, um, and the. A, a very strong marker of the health of the pregnancy is whether you're nauseous. So women who are nauseous in the first trimester, although it's like feels terrible, actually it's a really good sign that the pregnancy will will continue. Um, but at the same time, when you when you try to research the link between coffee and miscarriage, you find that the kind of women who avoid coffee they also tend to be more nauseous. So it's it's actually hard to separate. Are they are you less likely to miscarry when you avoid coffee because of the coffee, or are you less likely to miscarry when you avoid coffee because you're nauseous, and that's why you're not drinking coffee, and it's why you're not miscarrying. And so there's sort of this confounding, very strong confounding factor. It's really hard to avoid because it's so tightly linked with both of these of these things. So you can't just it's, – it's very hard to control for, basically. And so it's – some of the research that I read, some of the, like, summary studies said, look, we really can't can't learn much at all about the links between coffee and miscarriage. It could be all of the – associations we see even at like 10 cups of coffee a day, those might all be fine. And the whole story is just about nausea. So in other words, two different women could look at this same data and come to very different conclusions. One might decide to have a cup of coffee a day and take the unknown risk and another person might not. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is this book and like this kind of approach is all about saying, look, you need to see the data for yourself and then you need to make the choice that you're that you're comfortable with. Oh, another interesting area, and and of course this is this is told to all pregnant women, is to avoid the litter box, and and you found that avoiding the litter box in terms of toxoplasmosis exposure isn't really the best way to avoid exposure to toxoplasmosis. Yeah, so so cats, it's true, like in principle, your cat can have toxoplasmosis, but the way that that cats get that is uh, by eating raw meat outside. And so if your cat is living outside or if it's old and so it's already kind of experienced toxoplasmosis, it's not going to be an issue to clean the litter box. And, in fact, we don't see links between cat ownership and toxoplasmosis unless it's, like, people who own three kitten or more kittens when they get pregnant. Um, but uh, that for some of the same reasons, actually, toxoplasmosis does seem to be linked with gardening. So I think the way you want to think about that is cats and other animals – poop in your garden. And so when you are gardening, you are sort of cleaning the litter box, except not for your cat, for all the cats. And therefore, that actually does seem to be a risk. And so, you know, pregnant women may, may want to think about limiting that behavior. So change the litter box, but maybe get your husband to do the gardening. Right. Exactly. You might like want to get him to do both things. I think that's totally fair. This may not be a chapter women want to share with their husband. <laughs> so in case you just tuned in, we're talking to economist Emily Oster about her latest book, Expecting Better, Why the Conventional Pregnancy Wisdom is Wrong and What You Really Need to Know. 
Another interesting section of expecting better is around bed rest, which it seems like has no upside, according to you. It does not seem to have an upside. That's true. So tell us, when is bed rest typically recommended and why shouldn't women do it? So bed rest is is recommended for a lot of uh, specific conditions like preeclampsia or cervical incompetence. It's also recommended often for just preterm labor, so women who are having contractions before they or uh, seem like they might be going going into labor. Um, so bed rest is it's like 20% of women in the U.S. are recommended to be on bed rest. There is no evidence that bed rest works. There is no positive evidence that bed rest works for any condition, for specifically the treatment of, of preterm labor, kind of not for a particular cause, but just in general. There are randomized studies which show that there's no impact of, of bed rest. So in some sense, like, there's just no positive evidence that this is something that's a good idea. And there's actually a fair amount of evidence that it's damaging in the sense of women, you know, we, there's losses of, of financial, there's financial losses, there's costs like that to people's family, but there's also medical issues like muscle atrophy and blood clots and so on. And so I think over time, actually most of the doctors I have spoken to about this, this issue have said like, yes, this is something we're trying to move away from. Like this, is, um, this isn't a good idea. We've come to realize it's not a good idea. Um, and yet I think it, it persists um, probably for a lot of different reasons. But I think it's something, this is the kind of thing I think women should probably know because then you are in a better position to say, look, maybe there's a reason for this in my specific case, but let me like push back a little bit and understand, is there really a reason my doctor thinks this will work for me as opposed to you know, just thinking it's like a good idea in general, which it's not. And then on the flip side, what is good advice to give around exercise? Exercising is fine, um, if you would like, uh, not skiing, uh, you know, not tackle football, but in general, like, there's no evidence that exercise is a problem. There's also basically no evidence that exercise is any more important during pregnancy than it is any other time. So uh, I think that there's a lot of emphasis on, on ex- like, given to pregnant women on exercising, and I think the, it should be sort of the same story you get when you're not pregnant, like, it's kind of good for you to exercise, and so if you want to do that, that's great, but if you don't want to do it, you know no more important during pregnancy than some other time. So obviously another real stressful area for couples when they're trying to figure out all the choices to do around pregnancy and birth is the actual labor itself. Are, are they going to do this intervention or that intervention? Are they going to do an epidural, um, hospital birth, uh, home birth? Tell us some of the interesting things you learned in, in parsing through the data around uh, labor and delivery. So the one thing that I think has been most like useful for my friends uh, is that having a doula during your birth is a really good idea. Um, regardless so not, of where it is. Regardless of where you're planning to do it or what kind of birth you're planning to have. It just turns out we actually have good randomized evidence that having a doula, even if you're planning to have an epidural and have a birth in a hospital, is still helpful at, say, avoiding a C-section and having things go smoothly. So that was something which like I, I personally... I kind of I I liked that result because I thought having our doula was amazing, um, but I think it's also something that could be you know quite useful to to a lot of women because I think that's something that not everybody does, but is you know maybe a, an important thing to consider adding. And then you also talk about uh, avoiding routine episiotomies. Yes, yeah. So episiotomies. So for people who are not have never been involved in where the baby comes out of, uh, it used to be quite common to basically cut the, um, c- 
cut in the vagina to try to make it easier for the baby to come out. Like the idea was if you made it bigger, then there would be more space. Uh, but it turns out that actually that increases the risk of serious tearing. It's, it, I think the, the way it was put to me by a doctor, which I think was kind of nice, is if you have a piece of fabric and first you cut it and then you try to rip it, that's a lot easier than if you try to rip it without cutting it. And so I think it's turned out that those are really those are a really bad idea, and we actually have moved uh, very much away from those, although, like with many things, practice doesn't always move as quickly as the theory and the guidelines do. So I think it's the kind of thing that's worth asking one's doctor to make sure that they're kind of up on that research. And lastly, on, on labor and delivery, uh, obviously um, there's a huge upside to epidurals, but there is a small downside, and that's often not discussed. Can you, can you talk about some of the risks around getting yeah. epidurals? Sure. So, so as you say, I think that there's a huge, there's a huge upside to the epidural, which is you know, that, it's, that it's really, really incredibly effective pain relief. Um, there are some risks, although I think the, the good news is that there mostly have to do with risks to the, to the mom in terms of things that may make the recovery more difficult. So, you know, there's more common use of instrumental instruments for delivery, so that's forceps or, or vacuum. It slightly increases the pushing time during the birth, although, you know, like 15 minutes, so on average not three hours. Uh, there's more use of Pitocin in labor. There's a larger chance of, of low maternal blood pressure. There's a few others. I mean, I think the basic message is kind of it, it slightly complicates the process of labor for mom. doesn't seem to be particularly problematic for the baby. Um, and so I think this is the kind of thing where, where women want to think, you know, here's, there's some small downside, but there's this big upside, and people were to come down different, different ways on that, uh, on that choice. I don't know if you came across this, but I I, th- I think I'm remembering correctly that the, that it also can cause a fever, which then routinely you'll get an antibiotic just to rule out the possibility yeah. of a bacterial infection. Yeah. So the one the one thing that is that that does sort of follow over you, you say to the as you say to the baby is that um, is that because women are likely to spike a fever with an epidural, there is then a tendency to give the baby an antibiotic because you don't know if the fever is from the epidural or the fever is is from the uh, is from an infection. And so I think that is, that is something to consider, you know, giving your baby antibiotics isn't the end of the world, although I think it's not, it's not ideal if it's unnecessary. So Emily, as an economist, when, when you look at, uh, delivery and, and successful delivery, is, is having a home birth ever an advisable thing to do? Uh, so I, I find the rhetoric on home birth to be very black and white. Like some people say, you know, home birth, that's like, that's where you should have your baby. Women have been doing this way millions of years. And then on the other side, it's like only somebody with absolutely no regard for themselves or their child would have a home birth. And I think, you know, the truth is, um, I try to, to talk through this a bit more in, in the book. I think that there are risks. I think it's, it's naive to suggest that there are not. Um, birth, you know, women have been having babies at home for millions of years, but you know, a lot of them died. Um, having said that, you know, done in the right circumstances, I think it is likely that those risks are quite small. Um, so what I would say is, you know, if women are considering a home birth, and I do have friends who have done this, I think it's very important to make sure that the practitioner is, you know, as well-trained as possible and the circumstances are, are as, good, um, as good as possible. The other thing to remember is that about something like 30% of planned home births end up in the hospital, and so I think that's something women want to consider that if you try to start at home, you know, there's a 30% chance you'll be kind of frantically in a bad situation running to the hospital at the last minute, um, which may be less pleasant than kind of going there in a more relaxed way earlier on. 
So to end up the show, I would, I'm just curious, Emily, how your book has been received in the medical community. Has this, has it been controversial among primary care practitioners and, uh, and obstetricians? So the book is out tomorrow. Um, but I would say yes. Uh, yeah, I think that there's, you know, I think that, that it's, it's mixed. Um, certainly I've gotten some, you know, positive feedback from, from OBs. Um, I think that there's, there is also a little bit of a kind of, you know, you're not, you're not a doctor and, you know, what are you doing, doing doctoring? And I, you know, I think what I would, what I sort of would say to that is I really think this is, this is something that should help people interact better with their doctor. So this is, book is absolutely not a substitute for your doctor. You know, it, the book cannot deliver your baby for you and neither can I. But, but really, like, I think our time with our doctors in this, in this area is so limited you have, you know, six minutes a month to talk to your doctor about what's, what's going on with your pregnancy to make the most of that from either your side or the doctor's side, you have to come in sort of knowing something because the doctor doesn't have time to explain to you like what is prenatal testing and then also help you make a decision. And so part of what I'm trying to do in the book is get women to sort of know the basics and know what the literature says before they come in. And then they can have like a much more nuanced and, really productive conversation with their doctor about what's going to be really right for them. And, and honestly, probably most of the doctors have never looked at the primary data, say, on alcohol or coffee and, and pregnancy risk. That is probably true for some. I was at most maybe too strong. I would say certainly for some doctors that's going to be the case, yeah. So uh, do you have a website you could point our listeners to or any other uh, resources around Expecting Better? Uh, so I have a Slate blog about the book, um, which is at Slate. It's called Expecting Better, uh, and the book is available on Amazon. And if you want to read my academic research, I work at Chicago Booth, and you can find me there. Well, it was great having you on Health Watch today, Emily. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. We were talking today with economist Emily Oster about her new book, Expecting Better, Why the Conventional Pregnancy Wisdom is Wrong and What You Really Need to Know. If you missed part of today's program, later today you can go to the iTunes podcast store, type in Health Watch, one word, or my last name, Naaman, N-A-I-M-O-N, and you can pull up the episode. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday Morning Radio Zine. If you enjoyed this episode of Health Watch, there's a simple thing you can do to help spread the word. Please take a moment and go to Health Watch in your iTunes podcast store. Leave us a starred rating and write us a customer review. Thanks so much for your help. I'll see you next week.